You're listening to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Believe it or not, the term polyamory has only been around for a little over 30 years. However, while the name itself is still relatively new, the practice of it is not. People were living polyamorous lives long before we ever had this name for it, but they weren't necessarily practicing it in exactly the same way that people today are. Polyamory has morphed and changed over time, so in today's episode, we're going to dive into its long and fascinating history. Some of the topics we're going to explore include what we know about who the first people in the United States were to practice something akin to what we know today as polyamory, the surprising religious roots of ethical non-monogamy that emerged in the 1960s and 70s, how technology transformed the polyamory movement, as well as how media portrayals of polyamory have changed over time. I am joined by Christopher Gleason, who lectures at Kennesaw State University and is the Director of Academic Programs at the Georgia Coalition for Higher Education in Prisons. He lives in Atlanta, and his latest book is titled American Poly, A History. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Opening up a relationship can be a little daunting if you've never done it before. So what do you need to know to get off to a successful start? Beducated is here to help. Their online courses can give you the knowledge and skills you need to cultivate happy and healthy intimate relationships, no matter what form they might take. And that includes teaching you what you need to know if you're looking to explore the world of consensual non-monogamy. For example, their course on opening up will teach you what you need to know to bring up the idea of non-monogamy in your relationship. It also explores common challenges and how to overcome them, and it introduces you to different relationship models. The content is amazing, and there's so much to learn. Try all of Beducated's courses today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 40% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Miller, as the coupon code. There's also a 14-day money-back guarantee. Check the show notes for the link, and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Enjoy. Hi, Christopher, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure to have you here. So you just wrote a book about the history of polyamory. And as I was reading through it, I was struck from the very beginning when you talked about how the origin of this book was laid when you were a seminary student at the ultra-conservative Liberty University. And that's probably not what most people would guess to be the starting point for a book like this. It doesn't surprise me, though, because you're now the second former minister-turned-polyamory researcher I've had on the show. Uh, The first was Dr. Heath Scheckinger, who I interviewed all the way back in episode 43. But tell us a little bit more about this. What's the story behind how you came to write this book? Yeah, so I uh, was a seminarian. I did my undergraduate studies in religious studies, and I was devout Christian through that process. Went off to Liberty University thinking that I was going to be a uh, probably a religious educator. I wanted to teach, you know, church history and academic side of it. And oddly enough, it was there that I kind of saw the nuts and bolts of the intellectual kind of heritage that I was grown up in that I wasn't able to really get to the critical bottom of until I got to that place. And once I did, that foundation started falling apart. Uh, and it was definitely the political aspect being, you know, right there on the front lines of 
going to a Liberty University convocation and having like Carl Rove or Sean Hannity being your speaker was eye-opening to say the least. I did finish as a Baptist seminarian. I went to the West Coast to a little small Southern Baptist, the one that kind of gets forgotten on the West Coast, and finished my MDiv there, but had pretty much decided that I was going to probably just for a job, um, kind of maybe look for something outside of academia, but decided that I wanted to kind of see what liberal Christianity had to say. So I ended up finishing a second seminary degree uh, at Princeton Theological Seminary, and that was a very different experience. I enjoyed it very much. It was very rigorous. But even then, it was a little interesting. I, I think I had lost my place. Issues of queerness begin to really kind of emerge. I, even coming through the conservative world, had always been a closeted bisexual. I became married to another bisexual woman who, you know, that's one of the things that we had connected over, but, you know, we were trying to live the, the proper Christian life. You know, I wanted to hear what the liberal Christians had to say about sexuality in general and things like that. And I just kind of came to the conclusion that I didn't really feel like either side had a very good handle on it. And so I became an agnostic and went back into secular academia. (laughs) (laughs) What had really sparked my interest was science and religion. And so when I was in New Jersey, I, I kind of answered those questions about religiosity as far as the conflict of science and religion. When I was at Liberty, they wouldn't let me be a TA or graduate assistant and get a stipend unless I signed saying I was a six-day creationist. And so that really spiraled me into these questions about Darwinian evolution. And I think you even see that. I use that analogy a lot in the book, you know, in the beginning and the end. But, you know, when I got to, to write my, my dissertation, I was talking to my advisor and he was like, I was going to rehash these older kind of conversations about culture wars over science. And he was like, why don't you do something different? He was like, you're in a different place in your life now. You have a, you know, instead of writing against something, maybe you can, you know, open up a new conversation. And by then I had become kind of exploring the dating sites and seeing, you know, what people were out there doing after 10 years of being in a monogamous relationship, began to transition into that. And uh, I became really interested in post-Christian sexual ethics, specifically polyamory. So I dug straight in. And I I really think you can kind of see that whole journey kind of come out of in the book a little bit as well. Well, it's a fascinating backstory. And I, (laughs) I, I, I often like to ask people about what their professional journey is, how they got to where they are, why they're doing the things that they do. And I haven't heard that exact version before, (laughs) Um, but I love it. There's, there's so many unique things about that. We could just do a whole show uh, on, on that journey, but thanks for sharing that. So let's dive into the history of polyamory. And as a starting point, let's talk a little bit about the word polyamory itself. You know, I think a lot of listeners will be surprised to learn that this word, as far as we know, has actually only been around for about 30 or so years. You know, so relatively speaking, it's a pretty new term. But the practice of polyamory itself traces back much further. You know, people were polyamorous before the term poly even existed. So tell us a little bit about that. When did the word polyamory enter the mainstream and what were people calling it before we had that term? So there's a debate over exactly when polyamory was coined. Or definitely early 90s, 1990, you have Morning Glory Zell. She wrote the Banquet of Lovers article for Green Egg, where she essentially gave a name to what her and Oberon Zell, her husband, had been practicing for decades. And then right about that same time, I think it was 92, Jennifer West at UVA ended up also online using the actual term polyamory. So there's the difference of polyamorous and polyamory and people fight over who, you know, was the first to actually use the word. But the term essentially emerged in the early 90s. And whether you're in these kind of 
conference uh, circuits where people were having these conversations or whether you were online, either way, you came into contact with it at that point and people started using the term. But you're 100% right. I mean, this is something that people have been doing for, I mean, you could go back further than I do probably, but essentially what I had to do is I had to make some choices about where I was going to trace it back through. And so I kind of started with those communities, both online and in the kind of conferences and these different countercultural groups that, that were having these conversations. And I just kind of did, you know, what I kind of see is more or less an intellectual history. Who were they hanging out with? So it was cultural, intellectual, I think. What were they reading? How far back did it go? And so, you know, I start in the introduction and I talk about these communities that were prevalent in the 19th century. You know, you have Fourierite communities, these kind of free love communities that pop up kind of throughout uh, the 19th century. And a lot of people will point to those as kind of like a first wave of polyamory. There's a complete legitimate claim to that. One of the things that I try to focus on in the book is this is a history. There are other arguments that could be made for forerunners or precursors. But what I didn't find is a direct connection between those and, and the communities that I studied in the 20th century. And so what I really wanted to do is kind of follow them back. And in doing so, I could make a pretty clear connection to the 1920s and then, you know, through the 30s and 40s. But the largest groundwork really kind of emerged in the counterculture of the 1960s. Yeah. So it has a long history, but the terminology, the meaning of it, I, I think has evolved a bit over time. And I think you make a good point when you call it a history, because anytime we're talking about history, we're talking about a version of history. And there are different ways because there are always, you know, those choices to be made and what stories you're going to tell. And especially when it comes to something like polyamory, where that word was not in use historically before the 90s. So you kind of have to figure out what are the relevant lineages here to follow in the past? But I think you do a nice job of kind of sorting through that and, and connecting it with these different moments in history. And I think free love is a term that a lot of people often equate with polyamory, or at least in terms of where the modern understanding of what polyamory might be kind of came from. Now, your book explores the history of polyamory in the U.S. And of course, Polyamory exists all around the world, and its trajectory might look different across different cultures. But tell us a little bit more about kind of like the earliest roots of polyamory. Like, who were the first people practicing something that looks like what we might call polyamory today? Just answering that, you kind of have to make some choices, because if you define polyamory, which I try to do as, you know, this open and honest relationship structure where multiple people are uh, consensually engaged. That's, you know, kind of the baseline of polyamory. But I think what it's really become emerged as is uh, something that's also very gender affirming, very queer affirming. And so if you define it that way, you know, it is kind of like a 20th century manifestation. I would like to make connections back to the 19th century, especially some of those free love communities, because in a lot of ways, there were some huge analogies. They were very spiritualists, which a lot of polyamorous were in the mid 20th century. They were very focused on personal autonomy, honesty, not being trapped in marriages that were not, you know, once you had decided that wasn't a, a good fit anymore. But they definitely wouldn't be uh, as gender egalitarian or as queer affirming as polyamory is now. So I think if we define it that way, really, you know, mid-century in the 20th century is where you really begin to see people who are doing things that they will eventually give a name to in the 90s that represent what they've been doing for, you know, a couple of decades at that point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it further highlights the importance of, you know, when we're talking about something like polyamory, its meaning, its definition might change across time and across culture. And so, you know, that, that further complicates trying to 
talk about the history of it because it just kind of has that ever-evolving meaning. Now, a lot of people might be tempted to see polyamory as something that is at odds with religion, given that monogamous marriage has historically been at the core of most of the dominant religions in the United States. However, during the sexual revolution, ethical non-monogamy was something that was actually part of a much bigger religious and spiritual movement that was taking place. So polyamory wasn't disconnected from religion and spirituality. Rather, these things were intimately intertwined. So tell us a little bit about that. You know, what were the religious roots of ethical non-monogamy in the 1960s and 70s? Now, this is one of the most fascinating things. When I first approached this project, I thought that I was going to be studying like post-Christian secular New York intellectuals or something, you know, along those lines. And very quickly, it was Flower Children in the 1960s and this, you know, very vibrant, very beautiful and complicated in a lot of ways, religious history. But one of the things that I think that I really try to push in the book is that with this movement away from Christianity in the mid-century that happens that, you know, conservatives kind of look back, you know, that we always say that how you view the 60s kind of belies your politics, right? And if you look at this as a negative thing or a positive thing, typically people who are more focusing on the conservative religious history of sexual morality will look at the 1960s as a slide away from that. And I think that what I really try to pull out is that a lot of these people who were trying to redefine relationship structures in mid-century weren't, it was not a destructive project, but they were creating something new with the absence of that, you know, Judeo-Christian tradition. And so, you know, you see this really huge influx. I think with the beats and stuff, you see this movement towards Eastern religion. And I think what kind of gets missed is is this pre-Christian pagan fixation that some people had. And you just really get this eclectic mix where people are kind of pulling different ideas from different things and, and creating something from the ground up. In the book, I focus on two major, I guess, what we would call new religious movements that kind of emerge. One of them is deeply pagan. They look back to this European pre-Christian religion in order to, you know, really venerate goddess, the Mother Earth, Gaia, this uh, very environmental, earthy kind of religion that's, it forms the foundation of their sexual ethics and how they relate to each other. And it's uh, very pantheistic in the fact that you, you have this deep regard for someone else because they are divine, just like you are. That was a a very different path that I thought that the project was going to go. And then I focus on another new religious movement, Carista, as well. And, you know, they were a very utopian. They had tried the free love thing in the 60s and it had been contentious and difficult. So they actually throughout the 70s began to kind of emerge as what their detractors would probably say is a little cultish in, in their tendencies, but they would put rigid rules around kind of the practices that they would have. But in doing so, that they, they really tried to make a form of ethical non-monogamy that essentially says that the way in which ethics in the system are kind of defined or the commitment to the group. So it was a, a form of group marriage, which working in their favor, it definitely prized commitment to the message or the group much more above any kind of like free form hedonism or anything like that. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. And I think it still reflects what the polyamory community looks like today. It's it's very diverse. And, you know, I know many people who are polyamorous, some are very spiritual and polyamory is like connected to this bigger sense of just how they 
interact with the world and the nature of the way that they relate to other people. You know, it's there is something that's deeply spiritual about that for some people, but I know others where that just isn't the case at all. It's just interesting, this diversity that exists uh, within the community, but how there is for many people that sort of religious root or spiritual root to it that took place uh, in the 60s and 70s. So the sexual revolution obviously played a huge role in how polyamory evolved, but there were lots of things that played a role as well. And I think another one of the big contributors was if you jump ahead in time a little bit to the 1990s, you had this technological revolution that took place and the internet became widespread in terms of people being able to access it. So what impact did the internet and technology have on the polyamory movement? It's really what tells the story of how polyamory became bigger than something that was tied to the spirituality of the 1960s and the technological explosion that happened. A revolution happened after the sexual revolution was, you know, so two decades really apart or, you know, a decade, two decades. Polyamory kind of got caught up for a little bit in the 70s in these communes or these, you know, at least the foundational ideas. And I think that people, the interesting thing is it turns out that people were doing it. They just weren't connected. They weren't talking to each other. And the internet gave them the ability to do that. So one of the things I do is kind of follow the the actual trajectory of the people who were in the communes, in the, you know, doing the spirituality. And then, you know, in the 80s, you see the internet come alongside and all of a sudden they're looking around and they're seeing people that didn't know about them and they didn't know about the other people as well. But then they're able to kind of give the language to people who are practicing stuff already throughout the country. I have these, you know, examples of people who are, you know, in very rural areas out in Oklahoma or somewhere, and all of a sudden they can jump on these early rudimentary kind of news groups and things like that and meet people that they had really no idea that they existed. And a lot of them didn't have the connection to the 60s spirituality that some of the other people did. So I think one of the things that it really did is it connected people and it created a, a larger network, but it also brought in that language that the 60s kind of uh, those people who were, you know, really in those communes and, and experimenting very fervently, it let them kind of disseminate a language to a larger group of people. Yeah. And I think that's true with regard to just more broadly how the internet has changed sexuality and relationships. You know, I do a lot of media interviews where you get questions about how the internet, you know, introduced people to or created new sexual interests that didn't exist before. And the reality is that, no, those interests were kind of always there. It's just that people didn't have that common language or vernacular for talking about them. They thought they were the only one that had that interest. And so I think it has been much more about helping people to not feel alone, building communities, recognizing that, hey, I'm not the only one who might have these interests. And so that was really crucial for kind of building this bigger community, coming up with that common language and so forth. Now, something I found really interesting while reading your book were the examples you provided of how media portrayals of polyamory changed over time. Now, I mean, there was a time when no mainstream media would even touch this subject, right? Because it was just too controversial. But when it started to appear in media, it was often treated just kind of as a spectacle or sideshow, you know, like Jerry Springer daytime talk show kind of stuff. And it's really only in very, very recent years that media has kind of started to take the subject more seriously. So tell us a bit about the evolution of polyamory in the media and how you think that's shaping people's attitudes and views of it. 
So I think this is something that I really found fascinating because when I'm tracing, you know, some of the people who are very pivotal in coming up with foundational ideas and notions, they wanted to be advocates. They wanted to be activists and they would end up, you know, just like you said, on Sally, Jesse, Raphael or, or Jerry Springer or Geraldo. You know, I, I when I was going in the Kinsey Institute archives, I was watching these unaired Geraldo episodes. And it was very interesting because later after I'd finished, I got to go back and talk to some of the people I'd written about. And I was like, yeah, I saw this unaired episode of, of Geraldo. And they were like, oh, no, I can't believe you saw that. I'm so embarrassed, you know, because they really were at, they were optimistic about the fact that they would if they just could convince the world, everyone would realize that, that this was the new best thing. And uh, they were it was a sideshow. They, they were, you know, made a spectacle. And eventually they decided that, you know, most of the activists decided that that's not something they wanted a part of anymore. And it's interesting. I was just listening to an interview with Alan M who does the poly in, um, in the media. And uh, he was talking about how when Robin Trask took over loving more, there was this kind of movement away from doing everybody was like, we just kind of need to be quiet, a kind of lull. And then very quickly in 2005, right about, you know, the time podcasts and different things began coming emerging. There was a real big shift the other way around. And all of a sudden you begin to have podcasts positive medial portrayals. Time Magazine, right at the turn of the century, I think it was 99, ended up doing a fairly positive. That was one of the first kind of major L, different, you know, eventually Cosmo and different things like that will begin to positively portray it. But I really think, and I kind of make the argument in the book that polyamory benefited in kind of that sea change in public opinion about queerness in general. And I think that that really, you know, as queerness became accepted. And that was a, almost, an, I mean, it seems in hindsight, a very fast turn that happened. I think that polyamory was able to kind of benefit from that. And a lot of times through portrayal, you know, now if you're flipping on watching, you know, TV, it's not uncommon to see something that portrays polyamory in a positive light or has some kind of maybe actually nuanced depiction of polyamorous relationships. I really probably give a good bit of credit to that shift in queer acceptance. Yeah, these things are definitely all interconnected. And, you know, it kind of makes sense that you would see greater acceptance of non-monogamy at a time when you're seeing greater acceptance of homosexuality, bisexuality, and so forth, because you have that much higher prevalence of non-monogamy in the LGBTQ community to begin with. So those things are kind of already connected to some degree. It's interesting what you bring up about sort of the rise of podcasts as a turning point in all of this, because I think when you look at previous media, like in the 80s and 90s, if you wanted to be an advocate for a very stigmatized topic like polyamory, you didn't have any control over what would actually be put out there. You know, you would have to have somebody who was willing to put you on their show and then they would make a decision about how they wanted to treat you and what they wanted to show or air. And, you know, that contributed to that sensationalization that happened. But with the rise of podcasting and these other forms of modern media, you suddenly have a lot more control over the information and content and what you're putting out there. And I think that creates a lot more opportunities to have this open dialogue that isn't sensationalized or biased in, in some way and just creates all these other opportunities for people to learn about these topics that in previous years, it would have been really hard for them to even come to light at all. A hundred percent. There was as many times where I was looking through some of the archives and I would look at, say, you know, Ryan Nearing was a woman who founded Loving More and she was very advocate or very adamant about being a public advocate early on and eventually quit because she had been burned so many times. But, you know, she would write about how she would take 
all of these very substantial materials about what polyamory is, what, and she would give them to show producers and they would just, you know, they would accept them and then never mention them, never just cut it out and make some sensational show. So it's, it's very disconcerting, I think on their parts. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and that's still true to some degree with media. Whenever you sign up to be on somebody's show, you usually have to sign a release that says they can kind of do whatever they want with the content that you're giving them. So there is some risk of that, but that's where having people be their own content creators and being in control of the narrative creates all these other opportunities to get the information out there. So you brought up the Kinsey archives a couple of times, and I was actually going to ask you about this. So, you know, I saw that you did some work combing through the archives as research for the book, and it turns out that they have a pretty big polyamory collection. So tell us a little bit more about what you found in the archives and how it informed the work that you did. So it was really wonderful. So the Ken Haslam polyamory collection, it formed kind of a structure or a backbone to kind of the narrative because uh, Dr. Haslam had been so good at collecting things over the years. And, I, you know, I, it's so funny because I, I wish I was as a historian, I should be better about collecting things in my own life and things. But it, I'm always so indebted when people think ahead in order to collect something because the archivists there have been so well organizing the collection has been done. So I got a good general kind of narrative arc. And then I would just have to go to different places, uh, specifically the UC system in California and kind of fill in some of the gaps that were missing from the archives. But no, it was wonderful. I got, you know, there was so much about the Loving More movement there. There were the old tapes and videos of uh, speeches or appearances and different things. That, I mean, it took me a long time to go through that. I would go up there for, say, a week at a time, and I would do nothing but photograph documents, and then I'd have thousands of things to to uh, go through when I got home. But the archivists at the Kinsey Institute really were the backbone of this project, too. They were wonderful. Sometimes if I'd missed something, they would send me audio or video clips, too. So it was it was a wonderful opportunity to work with them. Yeah, I really appreciate the people in our field who are historians who try to catalog and archive everything related to human sexuality. I know Alfred Kinsey was very big on this back in his day. He was a collector of things related to sex from all around the world. It actually got him in a lot of trouble at the time yeah. because sometimes things that he was being shipped were things that would have been deemed obscene. And, you know, that led to a whole customs case that I think went all the way to the Supreme Court. And so, you know, it was very controversial and very difficult and risky for him to be collecting, you know, information on, you know, contraceptives and pornography and other things at that time in the 1940s and 50s when he was doing his work. But if he didn't do it, it might not exist. And it's such an important piece of history. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to ask you about sort of the history of polyamory is that, you know, as I was reading through your book, I saw the name of another book come up that has had a pretty big influence in this area. And it's a book called The Ethical Slut. And I didn't realize the first edition of that was actually published in the 1990s. It's a book that has now gone into multiple editions and it still sells a lot of copies today. And it's something that I've recommended to people for many, many years who want more resources for learning about polyamory and other forms of non-monogamy. So tell us a little bit about the legacy of the ethical slut and the role that that sort of played in kind of shaping people's knowledge, attitudes, and opinions about polyamory. When I talk to people now, especially uh, who are either new to polyamory or maybe they've heard about it a little bit, you know, that is one of the most widely known texts. 
And I think the name itself, it lends it, it was, you know, very clever and exactly what it is, very straightforward. Essentially, I think that was the first real move to make a, a sort of a handbook, right? That could give a broader view of the lay of the land, the kind of ethical reasoning behind it to really uh, move away from this kind of forms of polyamory that are exclusive. You know, there's this conversation, you know, especially in early polyamory, but it's, it's very much still present here today. What is outside the bounds of polyamory? You know, what is not ethical anymore? And I think, you know, there was this whole contingent of people kind of right there at the late 90s that were essentially saying, you know, if you're having casual sex, you're not actually doing polyamory right, right? And then there was another contingent that basically said, well, I can have a committed relationship and have casual sex and I am polyamorous, like in drawing lines around what is and what isn't polyamory, it says, hey, we can be sex positive and be polyamorous at the same time. And that's okay. And I think that was a really big shift. So I think that it was a, a really concerted effort to almost do a, a systematic assessment of the lifestyle and the thought. And it was very rudimentary. It was kind of a first, like you said, you know, the first edition goes back a long way. And so one of the things I do is I try to show how, you know, it was a, a wonderful foundational text. And then other people came after that and tried to build on it. But I think that the the whole, you know, if you want to say polyamory is a movement or, you know, it's a, a, you know, a social trend or, or however you want to frame it, it was a really exceptional piece of work. It was very foundational. Yeah. And I have a copy of it on my shelf right behind me. It's a book that I think is still worth reading today. So thank you for sharing all of this, Christopher. I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation in the next episode and diving into the subject of politics and polyamory. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Christopher. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your new book, American Poly? Yeah, American Poly, it's uh, available anywhere books are sold after November 1st. And then I am primarily active on Instagram uh, at Christopher M. Gleason uh, is the handle there is, is how you can get in touch with me. And I'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm most active on Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Christopher's new book, American Polly. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.